Underwriting for Auto Line this week has been provided by. In this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance, we're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge. And now, here is your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week. Say, if you had to sell and market cars, how would you go about doing it? Well, we're going to learn how the Ford Motor Company goes about doing it because my special guest today is Jim Farley, the executive vice president in charge of all that at Ford. Jim, great to have you here. Nice to be here, John. Also joining me are my colleagues Keith Naughton from Bloomberg and Carl Hankel from the Detroit News, and great having the both of you here as well. Thanks, Thank John. you. Jim, years ago when you were last on the show, you talked about what you really wanted to see in advertising and marketing is engagement. And sure enough, if we haven't seen the whole auto industry go off on a binge like that, mm -hmm. of really trying to get people engaged in what they're doing. What's the hot button now? What are you really looking for in advertising and marketing? Right. Nowadays, I spend a lot of time on the West Coast with Facebook and Twitter and, you know, um, the transformation we'll see in our industry has already kind of happened in, in other categories in marketing where digital will be the first, will be the first thing we design our marketing around. And that is a game changer for a couple of reasons. Number one, it means we have to go from a campaign model launching this product, this sales event, to an always-on content factory. Number two, um, we will have the opportunity for personalized advertising because we can track with donuts where people are, where people have come and where they're going uh, uh, as we serve up an ad. And that means our whole infrastructure around CRM and, and tracking those customers digitally for us is going to be a game changer in terms of infrastructure. Not, not our website, but actually the mechanics of the digital database. Um, there are a lot of other transformations going to have to happen with this, um, but it also will kind of disrupt the tier system of advertising that we've lived with in our industry. Tier 1, the national uh, company. Tier 2, the dealer ad groups. Tier 3, the individual dealers. With digital, um, when you're targeting an individual customer at Tier 1, those tiers don't make as much sense. Uh, and that will really change the way we work as a company. What do you mean by personalized advertising? You mean an ad aimed right at me? Yeah, so if I know that you're driving a Nissan and um, I know um, uh, what you've done online, I know what sites you've gone, and I can track that whole experience online, what you've searched, everything, and I can catalog all that and put it in a decision tree where I know I need to serve you up an alt, you know, a, a, a fusion ad uh, from this particular dealer, for example, showing the inventory. Um, I can do that because I, I know, I know. It's even more interesting if it's a Ford customer because I then can compare it to my finance database and know that you're 24 months into your lease. I know um, where you work, your driving patterns, who your friends are, what brands you like and dislike. Um, from Facebook, I can put all that data in analytics and then I can serve you up an ad that makes a lot more sense than just guessing like so, we do today. So that's kind of the very personal narrow casting. Mm -hmm. The opposite end of that spectrum would be the Super Bowl, the broadest of broadcasting, which you guys got back into with Lincoln. Yes, yes. Um, I'm just wondering how your experience with that was. You had been avoiding the Super Bowl for many years because you thought it was too much, too expensive, and too broad. 
It's a great question um, because this digital first will question kind of what is the role of broadcast media, and there's no better example than than the one you brought up. Um, I think what we learned is that there is so much media attention before and after the Super Bowl that you don't really need to do a Super Bowl ad in the traditional sense. And if you do, what really matters is the pre-release and uh, the post-release. Now, if you're one of the lucky few who takes a big risk in the creative to get noticed, mm-hmm. you may show up in the winners and losers. And, and that's it. But you have to take a risk. Like Chrysler? Like Chrysler did. And it, and it worked, I think, very effectively for them. And for a Challenger brand, it made a lot of sense. For us as a brand at Ford, I think the Super Bowl could give us uh, an opportunity. But frankly, what's more interesting is, and I think this day is coming soon, where a brand releases what looks to be a Super Bowl ad that never runs but gets just as much exposure. I.e., put it on YouTube or all the other social media. Here's our Super Bowl ad with no intention of running it. Like gorilla Super Bowl ads. Mm-hmm. So that's, I that's, absolutely that's convinced. what we should look for next from Ford? Um, not necessarily from us, but the opportunity exists. Why? Because everyone's listening. The two or three weeks before Super Bowl, everyone is listening. And so if you put something out there, people are going to share it. Um, and uh, I think actually the interesting thing about the Super Bowl is that Facebook and Twitter provide an opportunity every day that's as big as the Super Bowl. So how do you capitalize on that then? I think brands like um, Oreo have done a good job where they recognize that what matters is the topical news cycle, less the introduction of a new product. So they will take a simple Oreo cookie and change the filling that's appropriate for that day. Or, for example, if the lights go out in the Super Bowl, um, you know, they can, uh, they can do a custom create of that instant, put it on Facebook, have it shareable, and um, you have just as big an audience. And, and with mobile advertising now and Facebook being so effective, people are really using it. And you could see it in the revenue. Um, you absolutely have that audience, that scale. In anyone's news feed now, those ads are used, they're clicked on, they're, they're followed now. It's not an annoyance. They've proven that. They've proven it. Another interesting part of marketing cars today, especially around fuel efficiency, which is what people are primarily looking for in new cars, is how exactly do you market cars with a 45, 46, 47 mile an hour uh, EPA estimate when there's really not that much difference between one number and the next. And I remember uh, kind of talking to Toby Barlow before uh, the 47 mile a gallon CMAX numbers came out, and he said, you know, pretty much you get over 40 and people really kind of start to tune you out. Mm-hmm. Do you see it that way? And then how do you go about marketing something when, especially there's a more watchful eye on all automakers now with uh, the EPA numbers? Yeah, I'm sure we'll wind up talking about the CMAX here, but. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, also a very good question because um, fuel economy has rocketed up the purchase reason and is now number one. Not in luxury, quality still number one in luxury, but non-luxury volume brands, by far um, the biggest change in our industry. And it, and it will have definitely the biggest change in messaging and marketing. I think um, clearly uh, the EPA never intended the label to be used as a reference point in advertising as it has become. And clearly, customers now understand the correlation or lack of between the label and on-road performance on fuel economy. Those dynamic, plus you add a healthy spice of skepticism for big companies and what they say, and the car companies cherry-picking 
on a on a Wednesday with the wind behind you. We have leadership in this segment that is a subsegment of this other segment. Uh, that trend that's been going on for many years in our industry, and what it adds up to in the next couple of years is a, I think, a fundamental change in how way fuel economy is going to be marketed by competitors. What I mean by that is we will all be incentivized now to turn to on-road fuel economy as the the real consumer-centric judgment between different vehicles, and there is no third party judgment about, uh, and customers have a disbelief when a big company says in the real world we get X, Y, and Z. So I think this whole space will move probably from uh, everyone using EPA labels as a benchmark because of all the things I mentioned and more, to more brands doing real world testing of their fuel economy, moving away from super fueler versions, more the average vehicle and either using third-party or real customer uh, data and, um, and then sharing that with customers, especially digitally with long-form video as well as on broadcast. Um, it's, it's a change I think is, uh, customers would appreciate and I think it's time for us to make that transition as an industry. But, but how do you do that in a way that's credible uh, in, in your efforts? And what I mean by that is, as you know, as people compare different cars online as they go shopping, if you're at the low end of the totem pole, even though your number's honest, boom, you get knocked off the list. Yep. Great question. Um, I wish I could answer that question because that is the million-dollar question. Even if we were to go to this different paradigm of on-road, people generally don't believe, you know, as I said, big companies what they say. So how do you get it to be a credible message? And, and how, do you, how do you pick a test that people will believe in versus cherry-picking a certain circumstances that advantages your product and doesn't the others? Um, you know, in places like Europe, you can't do comparative advertising. Here we can. I think what will happen, John, is that uh, I would hope the industry finds new JD powers in this space people like Fueler.com, people that are out there trying to give customers in the digital space real-world data based on a lot of sample size. And, and, and hopefully their brand will be credible enough that it, it will be more useful than, let's say, Ford saying it. You've started some efforts on that, haven't mm -hmm. you? You've yes, tried to, to create a community with yes. your, your hybrid buyers to yes. share information and, and driving practices to drive that up, yes. drive up their fuel efficiency. How's that working? What's, what kind of collaboration, cooperation, and, and people just joining in on that is, is I going think the, the most impactful uh, or what we've learned certainly is the impact of third-party applications. Um, you know, we're all used to Amazon and Facebook and Twitter, all these super apps. But there's a whole group of app developers that are very excited about getting their hands on vehicle data, combining that with your social graph, and writing apps that make it, whether it's gamification of fuel economy, make it fun to drive, or um, more efficiency-oriented for customers who really want to uh, that orientation, and I think what we've learned is that the community is really looking for apt, some group of apps that either the company or, frankly, none the company get developed um, that will add value to their usability of the car. And with onboard modems potentially down the road in most brands and the vehicle data being selectively shared with these apps, there's a lot you could do that we can't do today. Um, and I think uh, what we see is um, that app orientation is non-auto company oriented. 
Jim, what, what does Ford need to do to repair relations with consumers who feel betrayed mm. by your restating the mileage on the C-Max? Well, I think the, the most important thing is to share with them our experience. We've learned a lot from this C-Max experience and, and how um, the industry as a whole uses a general label. I mean, we were completely compliant along the whole way of, of the requirements for the EPA and the general the general label is a very misunderstood thing. It's very complicated and it's widely used in the industry just because of the sheer number of combinations. In our case, the judgment came down to whether we use you know, general label for CMAX or not. And what we found you know, with, with the input of customers is that using a sedan and a utility is, is really, you know, isn't ideal. And that's why we did what we did and announced what we did. Um, I think the most important thing is for us to continue just to tell customers this is our experience, we're learning, and um, that we are committed to leadership and fuel economy and committed to improve the vehicle, and that we reach out to the customers as we have to say that um, if you bought under this you know, context, then, then we'll, we have a formula that, to compensate you for some of that. Um, customers are... are very accepting of CMAX, and frankly, we still have a leadership claim on the EPA label. At 43, we're still better than the Prius V. But I, I think the most important thing f to be a leader in the space of fuel economy is we, we have to be straight with customers and say that we made a judgment and uh, we, we now made the announcement we did based on our experience. In the past year, you've launched important vehicles, uh, C-Max, Escape, Fusion, new MKZ. But in that time period, you've also had uh, many recalls regarding EcoBoost. You've had the, the EPA mileage restatement, and you've had the production delays in the MKZ. Mm -hmm. Is there an element to Ford maybe running a bit too fast for their own feet at this point and maybe needing to take a step back and say, all right, we've got a good basis here, but we need to make sure that we get all these little things right because they are starting to compound now? Mm -hmm. Well, no, I, I think um, our plan has always been to grow, profitably grow, and those aren't little things to us. Um, and each of those are different circumstances uh, in, in isolation. What I mean by that is um, all the opportunity that we found customers have really embraced technology as a differentiator for Ford. And yes, do we have an opportunity to make sure things work better? Absolutely. But would we... Um, do things differently in terms of an, uh, accelerating technology in our cars, allowing people to bring in their own technology and connect to the car um, and have a HMI that's more um, familiar to them uh, on their personal electronics than what the car industry was used to. No, those, you know, the data shows clearly that people have turned and continue to turn to Ford because of the in-car technology. And I am glad that we know how to upgrade a car digitally. That's a key learning for us as a company, that our dealers and our customers know how to upgrade their car, because um, that's always going to happen from this point forward. Um, on the C-Max, um, you know, we know that hybrid customers know there's more variability on a fuel economy label because of how they drive. And the way the C-Max drives is really all about fun to drive. And so we're going to see variants based on how people choose to drive home. I, I love Raj's, you know, uh, sharing a story of him driving back from Ann Arbor 
to Dearborn two different ways and what happened. I mean, that's very typical. I think we've certainly learned that, you know, um, based on our actions, uh, that, the, that the general label, you know, isn't the right approach for CMAX. Um, as far as uh, the MKZ launch that you brought up, you know, we are a challenger brand. We have to make sure our product is right. Um, and the luxury customer expectations are, you know, are really high. Quality is the number one purchase reason, not fuel economy. And we had to make sure that car was just right before we launched, especially as a Challenger brand. And um, we've seen with the acceptance of C-Max and, and MKZ Hybrid that customers did turn to us. After, after those issues, uh, we've had great success with those, both of those vehicles. And I'm absolutely convinced that C-Max will continue to be successful in the market. We sold 20,000 so far this year. and. It's a big part of our increase year over year. We're up I don't know, 400% in, in hybrid. We're 15% market share. Um, so it's not a dominant position, but we're number two. And, um, you know, the, the product appeal is still so high that um, the customers turn to the product. And even after the restatement of the label, we're still better than previous fee. So uh, I think it's a great question. Uh, something that the team is absolutely committed to. We're absolutely committed to fuel economy leadership, quality leadership, but also uh, technology leadership. I'm intrigued what you said at the beginning of the show that the, the whole different tier level in advertising mm -hmm. is going to change from automaker to the dealer groups to the dealers themselves. How do you think it's going to shake out? It's a good question. We're going through that right now with our dealer advisory group. Uh, we kind of involve them in everything. Uh, starting several years ago, and I think there's a couple of key kind of kernels of, of, uh, that we're learning. First is um, that the talent is, is going to have to be different. Traditionally, in the dealer ad groups, the local agencies are, um, the, the real expertise is spot media buys. You go out and buy spot TV. You know, right now, um, in, if you turn to 50 or 60, 70 percent digital buy now, there's not enough experience on how a search works for a local dealer ad group uh, successfully. And we don't have enough analytics out of the media partners to make good choices on that media allocation. Most dealers, at Ford at least, are spending more than 50 percent of their advertising on digital now. So the dealers have moved. The dealer ad groups, we have variants from 5% to 50%. Some are up to 50% now. But we don't have the talent analytics to understand how a sales event or a Memorial Day sale by the dealers in Chicago should work digitally and the learning that's going to have to take place because it is a different rhythm. That's one thing is the talent and the analytics it has to change. The second thing is that most dealers are spending more than 50% on digital already, but they're not sure they're spending it the right way. And so another role, which is a real game changer, is for the dealer ad groups to actually be a support mechanism for individual dealers in that metro, to help them with their digital ad plans, because there is a transition. And um, traditionally, you know, the dealers would work on the dealer ad group uh, collectively, but when it came to their individual business, they were kind of competing. But with the digital space being so new, I definitely see, and we definitely see, a need for the dealer ad groups to be kind of a support mechanism for effective dealer advertising, digitally dealer advertising. Those are th some of the things we're learning transition. Companies like Walmart, 
who have, you know, they're, they're retailers. They don't make anything. Well, they make a lot of stuff, but they, they really don't, you know, they're a retailer. They have learned a lot about digital retailing. And one of the key things they've learned is the installation of Wi-Fi. And the reason why Wi-Fi in a store is so important for retailers, you know what the customers are doing. They know, you know what they're searching. They know what content they're using. They know, you know where they physically are. Um, and that's one of the big advantages for these retailers in installing Wi-Fi. That's another big advantage. You want to go to digital first model, we have to install Wi-Fi in our dealers, dealerships, absolutely. So Jim, what do you make of the Tesla phenomenon? Mm. Stocks through the roof, Model mm. S is, is a darling, doing great in consumer reports and crash tests and sales. Uh, how do you analyze that situation? And is there anything that can be learned from it that you could apply to Lincoln? Well, I think there is quite a bit for us to learn, not only for Lincoln, but as an industry. Um, I think uh, the Model S is certainly a kind of a new experience. First of all, you join a community. Mm -hmm which, you know, go back to the Beatle, right? I mean, you know, people like owning a car and being part of a community. That's a piece of it. The second is the connected services, which I think will be one of the biggest changes in our industry. And uh, Tesla's done some great things about services in the car, uh, from charging to the social aspect of owning uh, Model S. Um, the physical car itself, I think, is a big learning for all of us. The joy of electrification as a performance item is, is very different than how the industry's kind of sold electrification, which is very much, you know, uh, green and, and efficiency. Uh, when you drive a Model S, some of the, you know, customers love how it feels. You know? So that's, I think, a really key learning for us in the performance world, equally applicable across the lineup for even major brands. I think the other one is um, the, uh, the, the, I don't know how to put this the right way, but um, there, the research wouldn't say that a $100,000 plus vehicle would sell in that kind of volume, but it has. And I think it's shown maybe similar to the first generation Prius that the early adopters tend to be very well-educated people and they have money. And I think... Um, it's, it's, I think, very challenging to make a PHEV or an HEV work commercially, you know, at, at the thirty to $40,000 price range, which is kind of proving to be the sweet spot of volume. But what's interesting to me is that there have been many cars like the LS460H, a lot of very high-end hybrids that didn't really capture imagination of customers, and yet we have one here that's $100,000, dollars that's selling in really high volumes, $1,500 plus a month. Um, that's a key learning for Lincoln, yes, but also for the industry. Um, and what it tells me is that even though the volumes are small, electrification can be fun and enjoyable. The product's executed right if you build a community of customers. Um, I do think there's still a, lot to, still a lot of question marks how the battery technology will, will live over the course of many years. Those wealthy customers expect a lot, and they really count on that estimate of range. And um, uh, so that, that's a big deal, how, you know, how the technology is actually going to be going to play out in a two or three or four or five-year-old car. That's a piece. I think the other one is um, uh, fine for very wealthy people, but you know, how do you make it work for the mass you know, group? 
of customers who pay twenty to thirty thousand dollars. I think that's a very different animal in terms of consumer requirements. Um, and the last thing is retailing. Um, you know, I, I think they've certainly gone to market in a very different way. But I'm still very much convinced by the franchise system, not because I've worked in the industry for 25 years, but I really believe in the idea that if, you're, if you have a problem with your car, there's a dealer, especially when you're driving it, there's a local dealer that will help you that's part of a larger group. Uh, and also that um, the kind of creativity of the retailer, I still believe in that idea. Ford and many companies try to buy company stores. And we knew how that worked out. And there are a lot of you know, brands in Europe and Asia that own their own dealerships still. And I, I think still a big question mark about, you know, is the company run kind of distribution network has pros and cons, but is it really better than a franchise system? And I, I'm, that's a question mark in my eyes. Right. Well, Elon Musk seems to think that he can do company stores like an Apple store. Mm -hmm. he, wants to, he wants to nest himself with Apple, not with mm -hmm. traditional car companies, and sell direct to consumers. You don't think that'll work over the, particularly as he goes more mass volume. Hey, well, we need a, a quick answer, yeah. sort of. We're getting down to the very Well, I, I just basically a, a car, a $100,000 car and a, and a computer, which we largely dispose of, are two very different things. Actually, we've got a little bit more time. So, quick question about Australia. You were just mm. there. Yes. Uh, you guys had some cleaning up to do, sort of, because you announced that you were going to stop manufacturing there. How, how did your effort go there? I think the response from uh, our employees, our dealers, and, and uh, media was fantastic because, like Europe and uh, Amsterdam last year, we showed the whole lineup and where we're going as a company and really tried to pivot kind of where we've been and where we're going. Um, you know, we had kind of the bankruptcy era here in the U.S. for that to happen, but in Europe and, and in places like Australia, mature markets where we've been in for a long time that are in crisis for different reasons, um, that we've, you know, we, we really needed to send a clear message to the, all the stakeholders on where we're going as a company, and everyone appreciated the clarity. Real good. With that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Jim Farley, thanks so much for coming on AutoLine. Very interesting discussion here. Thank you. And I uh, want to thank uh, both of my colleagues here, Carl Hankel and Keith Naughton, for having joined me. And want to thank all of you for having tuned in. And please join us again next week for AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by... In this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance, we're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge.